biological infection takes days to spread, whereas online it's perhaps 20 or 30 seconds after after um, exposure that someone will share something. It's also just the role of those um, what what are called broadcasting events in, in media, but we would call super spreading events. So hydroxychloroquine is in the news again as Trump and some news organizations are pushing it as a treatment despite evidence published in the BMJ showing it lacks efficacy and it having this whole load of potential negative effects including arrhythmias. We know that kind of information spreads online particularly through social media but how does it do that? I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast, I talk to Adam Kucharski from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who's used disease epidemiological tools to look at fake news spread. Now, quick note, this podcast was recorded a little time ago, before hydroxychloroquine gate or the UK's lockdown messaging had changed. Uh, But the point Adam makes are still valid in this new light. Uh, I'm Adam Kaczarski. I'm an associate professor at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and author of The Rules of Contagion. And uh, what uh, what is it you study and and what is it that you wrote about in that book? Uh, I study um, infectious disease outbreaks, particularly uh, directly transmitted uh, infections like uh, influenza uh, and the book covers um, really outbreaks in in their widest sense um, from infectious diseases to information and looking at the key drivers of transmission. Now must be a particularly interesting time for you because the two are kind of going in in parallel. You can you can really see the um, the spread of of well misinformation around uh, coronavirus uh, alongside its um, its actual physical spread. It is, and certainly early on, um, we saw a huge amount of misinformation. One of the quite striking things, actually, um, I realised research in the book was that actually at the individual level, the ma- the average magnitude of transmission is quite similar um, between a virus like like COVID and a lot of online information. The, the most popular content on Facebook, uh, for example, over, over recent years, on average, each person spread it to a couple of others, um, and, and that's very similar to what we see for coronavirus. But the big difference is. Uh, first of all, the timescales that, that biological infection takes days to spread, whereas online it's perhaps 20 or 30 seconds mm. after, after um, exposure that someone will share something. It's also just the role of those um, what, what are called broadcasting events in, in media, but we would call super spreading events um, in, uh, in epidemiology, these the, the single sources that can spread it um, to large numbers. And really, a lot of things that apparently go viral online are really driven often by a single individual outlet early on sparking that outbreak and i think we've seen that with a lot of contagion but what's also been really interesting is there seems to be much more willingness from platforms to take on misinformation because i, I suppose covid is one of these things that it's a clear threat and there is clear um good reliable health advice on it and there's a lot of misinformation i think in, re- in recent years there's been a, a bit of a shift in awareness from this idea that we should just somehow get rid of all bad information online uh, to thinking more much as you would for an epidemic about how you reduce exposure. I, mean, I don't think there's anyone um, who would say that for most diseases, 
all we should try and do is is find every last infection and that's how we control it you know from stis to um, vaccine preventable diseases we try and um, reduce the exposure risk we reduce susceptibility we target those other bits of the transmission process and i think what companies are now doing we've seen it for a lot of platforms is if you search for coronavirus information you're preempted with reliable health information it's it's much harder to access a lot of those uh, those misinformation sources if you go to a search engine or, or a social network. And obviously that that misinformation is still there, but the platforms have taken steps um, against it. I think it is remarkable that when I was I was writing about this in my book a, a year or two ago, I thought there is a risk that I'm just proposing quite <laughs> hypothetical things that I'm never going to see happen. You're talking about platforms should try and preempt people to reduce susceptibility and and no evidence that they were taking those measures and now it is a bit of a test case because i think they've they've actually been putting these things in place that that we've been suspecting will have an effect and so i think it's going to be really useful to see if there is actually helping misinformation uh, be reduced yeah and i suppose if we we take that analogy is that is what they're doing working like social distancing I think that's exactly what they've done. And, and an early example actually was Pinterest um, a, a couple of years ago now. They rewired how people are exposed to vaccine-related information on their platform. And and they actually said that they were finding it very difficult, as you'd expect, to reduce and remove all of that information from their platform. So instead, they just used a, essentially a form of online um, distancing and just made it harder for people to come across it. Um, the 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 harmful information was still out there. It just wasn't very easy to find. And I think that, if you think from an epidemiological point of view, is a far more powerful way of um, of preventing infection than to to relentlessly try and find every single piece of content and reactively remove it. Mm. And so I've just wondered from from a medical journal's point of view, or or maybe from a from different publishers, when we hear something like. There's conspiracy theories around 5G or, you know, it has this come from a lab and, and that's it. You know, the, the, these crazy stories that go around, our instinct might be to cover that, to try and debunk that. But, you know, going by the way in which epidemiologically these things change, that, that, that just ignoring them might be a, a better way forward? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a, there's a few things that, frankly, people do to exploit um, uh, yeah, attempts to, to overcome this information. So, so a classic one is people will often retweet or quote tweet things that are provocative they disagree with. And all you're doing is increasing engagement metrics on that information and getting more people to see it. Um, and there's been a lot of examples that I've seen you know, on Twitter of something that's, that's clearly wrong and clearly inflammatory, but has about five likes. And I know that if I engage with that in any way, I'm going to amplify it far more than it would be already. Um, I think the 5G thing is a is a strange one because it has got a lot of pickup and it's, it, it's particularly been a few celebrities doing that. And I think in that situation, actually, probably a more efficient way of, of containing it is if there are a handful of celebrities who are behind it actually targeting those individuals with correct information, actually trying to persuade them to stop spreading it rather than trying to find all the people who are sharing it with one or two others. Um, I think really trying to get those, get those at source um, and probably offline as well. I mean, I think Twitter is a, 
is, is a useful platform, but it is very much like you're standing having arguments on a stage or, you know, in a stadium even. Mm. Um, and so I think for a lot of particularly those nuanced issues that require persuasion, um, there's a huge amount of evidence from everything from violence to, to political beliefs to actually one-on-one face-to-face conversations, ideally slightly harder at the moment, but, but actually there's one-on-one um, engagements can be much much better than trying to have these these conversations on an online platform. We've covered a lot there. Are there any other parallels between fake news and viral spread? There's always a lot of focus on evolution um, and mutation for, for for diseases and pandemics. I think in this outbreak, there's there's very little evidence that there's been any mutations which have affected transmission of, of viral characteristics in any kind of meaningful way. Um, but with information, we certainly do see that. Uh, and I think particularly online, you can get these um, these mutations and changes in content that, that can in- increase transmissibility. And I think that there are some really nice studies coming out in the last couple of years of actually looking at how that process can, can almost mimic natural selection, where you see large numbers of memes emerging and, and some probably aren't that transmission, probably do have a reproduction number less than one and others manage to, to take off. And I think there are some uh, interesting analogies, very much in the early stages, but with that, that process of emergence we see for diseases as, as well and, and how in the artificial world um, you're getting some evidence that there can be mimicry of that. Mm. And that's interesting that you know epidemiologists and, and people are looking this at this now and we've kind of figured out many of the factors that um, that matter when it comes to transmissibility uh, of, of a virus. And so really identifying some of those factors for, um, for, for information or misinformation um, could be helpful in, in actually coming up with, with good plans for, for tackling it. I hope so. And I, I think it's, it's really just a, a way of looking at, at these kinds of problems. I mean, I think certainly there, there's some fantastic work going on in terms of research online and a lot of social media platforms. Actually, their research teams are doing really nice um, work in terms of analysis. Uh, but I think one of the, the reasons um, I wrote those chapters in the book is to, to see if there was some perspective that other fields could provide, which could could either help validate things that have been done but maybe don't have the, the epidemiological underpinnings yet or to suggest things that are, are on the horizon but potentially could have an impact and it's uh, as i said it's it's been really interesting in this um pandemic in terms of the information response that measures that perhaps platforms have been quite cautious about they're now rolling out very readily and hopefully um having a large effect I suppose the counterpoint of, of misinformation is is good information. And um, I think something that we've seen during this is kind of maybe confused messaging from uh, from our government, from the US government, from lots of governments about, about what to do. Uh, I, I just wonder if you've seen anything about clarity of message or, or simplicity of message and how that um that might help propagation of uh, uh of of these things through you know social media or, or wherever else yeah I and mean, i think simple i mean stay at home is an incredibly powerful three-word slogan that i think everyone has very easily got on board with um but the the challenge is a lot of the the measures that we probably needed to take early on and, and get people on board with things like self-isolation, household quarantine, which actually 
as a single measure, probably would reduce about 30 plus percent of transmission if people adhered to it really strictly. So you could have earlier on, if, if more people had been self-isolating quarantine at household level, you, you probably could have slowed transmission considerably without widespread disruption. But of course, that's quite a nuanced message. You know, what, what do we mean by symptoms? What do you mean by, um, by household? You know, all this kind of stuff. And I, I think on the one hand, a lot of the messaging that has come out could have been much clearer in terms of actually what's expected of people and how urgent they need to, to adopt these behavior changes. Um, but I think we are going to see some challenges, particularly as measures become lifted, that people have got used to to a very clear, simple message at the moment. We just don't go outside unless we, we really, really need to. Um, and I think we, as we get a transition and potentially things are going to need to be relaxed and maybe reintroduced, it, it's going to be... I think a real um, a real challenge for communication to ensure that people are adopting appropriate measures, um, but also being able to change what that is and not just get settled into this is how we do things. I suppose when you're you know with your interest in in um, the spread of information and your interest in in kind of uh, disease epidemiology, um, have you seen? Uh, this interaction uh, between the the kind of virtual and the the real world happening before, and uh, are there any other places that we should be looking to for for lessons on how to to manage all of this? Yeah, I think um, I think I mean learning. I think from from other outbreaks and other um, campaigns is a really good one. I think there's there's been some some nice pieces recently actually on lessons. Um, from from the West Africa outbreaks, I think there's 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 always a temptation to see these outbreaks and settings as very different, but actually, a lot of those factors about community engagement and trust are exactly what's going to be really crucial here. And if you if you listen to people who are involved in early response in, in countries in Asia that have contained this uh, for much longer, those those elements of trust and, and getting buy-in from populations was a really large part of that. Uh, and so I think we should be learning as much as we can and not just from um, online information, but but from all of those sources. I mean, there's there's obviously, despite the fact um, there's focus on, on online content, a lot of people do get the information from mass media and, and a lot of those routes. And so I, I think we, uh, whether we're looking at things like political misinformation or whether we're looking at health information or, or what's going on in the current situation, what are those sources people are getting information from and how can we make sure um, that they're sufficiently engaged with, with what's happening and what's needed to, um, to ensure that we can reduce the impact of this thing. That was Adam Kuchowski from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine talking about transmission of fake news. As I said at the beginning, recorded a little while ago, but even more pertinent in the last week or so. That's it for this podcast, but if you want more on COVID-19, then have a look at bmj.com slash coronavirus, where you can find out all the BMJ's coverage available for free. As always, we'll be bringing you more in the podcast. This week, we have the first of a few US podcasts with our colleagues in the States, We'll also be back with another talk evidence looking at getting out of lockdown. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>